listeners, this is Allie. Um, I just wanted to go ahead and give you a warning for this episode. Um, it could be triggering for some of you. Um, it So Ray and I took a tour with uh, Mark Oslander, who is the director of the Michigan State University Museum, and um, Mary Worrell, who is the curator of textiles and social justice at the museum. And they gave us a tour of the Sister Survivor Finding Our Voice exhibit. And I think that the exhibit itself is really powerful, and I think you'll get to hear all the thought and um, effort that was put into this exhibit. But I do think that it could be triggering for some of you, and so I just wanted to give you that warning. Um, Without any further delay, here's the episode. So welcome to the Michigan State University Museum. Thank you for having us. I'm Mark Auslander, the director of the museum. I'm Mary Worrell, the Curator of Textiles and Social Justice for the Odyssey Museum. Social Justice, that must be such an interesting title to have on your title. It is. Um, I feel very strongly, as do others here at the mm-hmm. MSU Museum, about the role that museums can play in mm-hmm. addressing topics of social justice and thinking about how we use our collections, what we collect, how we bring things into exhibit mm-hmm. and choose our topics for exhibit and then use them with our university students. So. It's a really great. I'm sure I was very excited when they were like, "We're going to add social justice," and you were like, "No, can I have social justice? (laughs) Can you give that to me?" So, so the uh, museum staff has been involved in a collaborative relationship for over a year with the sister survivors of the Larry Derry. Sorry, the last year or so, the the museum staff has been involved in a collaborative relationship with the sister survivors of the Larry Nasser crisis, the largest crisis of sexual violence in the history of American higher education. We don't actually use the perpetrator's name within the exhibition except at the very beginning. Uh, we just refer to him as the perpetrator. The emphasis is, in fact, on the sister survivors' mm-hmm. story. As you enter the exhibition, you'll see a very powerful uh, font announcing the title of the exhibition, which was selected by the sister survivors. Finding Our Voice, Sister Survivors Speak. And there's a design motif uh, which the Sister Survivors asked for moving from darkness to light. A lot of emphasis on first person. Perhaps Mary could tell us a little bit about the survivor wall that we're looking at now. Yeah, sure. We're looking at a wall that is filled with 505 acrylic tiles that are individually hand-painted in a unique way um, and some interspersed with some of those tiles are images of the survivors at the age of abuse. This wall, the number 505 represents the number of known survivors at the time we were developing the exhibit. Working with our co-curators, the Sister Survivors Advisory Group on this project, it was very important we realized to include the representation of all of these survivors Um, and this wall has a visual impact of doing so. The process of creating the tiles was done by survivors and allies in some really special art creation spaces and um, they have this really beautiful, they're beautiful and they're individual yet they're emotional Mm -hmm. at the same time. It was interesting because when I came here for the first time, I expected so many things, but I did not expect to see a face that I recognized on the wall. And so I'm wondering if you, if that's the most common experience that you think that people have who come to see this exhibit? Uh, some people do. Uh, okay. Of course, not all sister survivors have chosen to have their faces. Right. Uh, but all have made a, an affirmative decision, so we would only represent somebody's right. face if they'd actually written to us and indicated that their face could be used. Mm. So in that sense, uh, these folks are public, and their names may have been in the press, but of course there are many uh, lifelong friends in Michigan who may not, may mm-hmm. not know that it's, uh, this story is theirs. It's a very visually impactful uh, wall. It's uh, surprisingly beautiful. It has changed since we opened on April 16th, uh, as more survivors have, brought, have decided to share their photographs and brought them in, and, then, uh, in um, and when they decide to have their photograph placed on the wall, they can if they wish take home with them one of these beautiful abstract painted uh, tiles uh, if they wish as a kind of keepsake. So this is an installation that keeps on changing. Uh, There's a very nice sort of unintentional shadow effect which some of the survivors have picked up on and noted that uh, there's sort of multiple parts of the self given their experience of this beautiful uh, uh, 
pallet that always has teal in it, but then also a reflected shape behind. And this all is framed around a first-person quote uh, that uh, came out at the time of the uh, victim impact statements of the of the trial in January 2015. You'll see as you walk through the exhibition a very detailed timeline of this uh, was something that was that remains extremely important to the sister survivors that uh, the whole history over three decades be laid out. There are different icons indicating S for the Spartan S, for if it's an MSU part of the story, if it's USA Gymnastics, there's an icon for that. USA Olympics, uh, there's also law enforcement. So it's a very complex interwoven story. Maybe Mary could say a little bit about the fact-checking process. That, sure, uh, so um, just a little bit more about the development of the timeline. As we were working through the different components of this exhibit, it became very clear to us that it, the timeline was a needed element and we couldn't just say here are 10 things to represent all of the story. It was made very clear to us that we did need to reach back to 1986 mm -hmm. to tell the story and to have those three branches uh, um, with the fourth coming in where you see a black tile of, of what had happened over the years. It was also very important to make sure that we knew that every fact on yeah. these timeline pieces was accurate because mm -hmm. um, we didn't want for whatever reason someone chose to for someone to challenge us on it we right. wanted to have the backup so I worked with um, three graduate students in history who took um, everything on the timeline that had been created and they were asked to find multiple sources yeah. so newspaper articles um, documents whatever a source was so that we have a resource document that everything on here we can go back and say this is where this piece of information came from and I mentioned how we were made very clear that to us that the timeline needed to be a part of this every element that we're going to be looking at in here was created through a co-curation process with a group of sister survivors and allies where um, we knew that the right way, or we quickly realized mm -hmm. that the right way to do this exhibit was not for us to just make all the decisions and decide and tell a story. We needed to include the people whose stories we were telling needed to be a part of that process. So we did work through a regular set of collaborative meetings and exchanges, regularly meeting, talking about all the elements, working on every element together. So even the opening wall that we looked at that was decided on together, the font, the words, all of the words were decided and agreed upon together, every element, and we'll see many elements that we were told were kind of deal breaker things, and mm -hmm. if they didn't end up in the final exhibit, that was going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. So we, it was our responsibility to make sure these voices were heard, and we were kind of the conduit to just to make sure what needed to be here mm -hmm. happened. Your experience in curation and building other types of exhibits, was that a new process for you? Um, no, not entirely. I think the size of the crisis and the emotional impact of it, that part was a little bit different than other community co-curation. For example, a previous project I did was with um, middle school students and technology. So we still did a co-curation process where we walked through the steps of how you create a museum exhibit and made all the decisions together, but not with all these other things that right, needed to be emotions. a part of this. Yeah, yeah, that was more like a education slash just fun activity. It was an after school club activity for the kids. Okay. Yeah, I would say I've, I've worked on trauma-informed exhibitions to some extent before on the history of slavery, history mm -hmm. of lynching, and so mm -hmm. forth. So used to sensitivity uh, and the importance of involving many voices. But this was by far the most challenging exhibition process we ever have been involved in uh, because not only was there a deeply traumatized community, but so many of the crimes had actually been committed on this campus, mm -hmm. and we all knew that our own institution, our own university's leadership was implicated, or at least complicit, or had dropped the ball in various ways over the course of years, decades. So we were all very mindful of that. So it was by far the most complicated and sensitive exhibition project we've ever been involved with, or that most folks in the museum world have been involved with. We're now standing in front of a space that we sometimes call the closet. It's actually an intermediate space between two galleries, sometimes used as a hallway. But uh, here it replicates uh, a kind of closet that might be in the home of a sister survivor who comes from a family that so-called leads green, mm -hmm. um, 
both in where's green and white, and perhaps Mary could explain a little bit about what's being evoked here. Sure, so um, the sense is that we live in this university community in East Lansing, and so many people are so into all of their green and white clothing, and so many people who grown up here are used to going to all the sporting events and all this MSU enthusiasm and what was happening and what had happened really made people not want to wear that MSU clothing mm -hmm. anymore because of the material from MSU. As an alumni I can echo that. Okay, I, I wear my ring every day since graduating and when this all came out I just felt the same way. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so this is kind of a concept kind of similar to the trendiness of if something doesn't spark joy, you mm -hmm. get rid of it. Um, and many people on our committee started to talk about they had all this clothing and one of the dads on our committee said his whole wardrobe was all MSU stuff and they wanted the sense of this closet is here, it's being emptied, it's being packed away and it's being packed away into a tote versus like a garbage bag mm -hmm. because there's a sense of well maybe at some point MSU will get me to the point where I'm okay wearing and enthusiastic about wearing it again but for now it needs to be packed away and put out of sight for me. Sometimes sisters will say the key to unlocking this closet would be the university actually honoring its ideals right. and, um, and taking the, undertaking the massive structural reform that's mm -hmm. necessary. As we move around, um, we come to a section called Something Happened. This is a phrase often used by the sister survivors uh, to characterize their early experience of abuse before they even had a vocabulary for referencing uh, sexual violence or, or assault or, or rape. Uh, uh, something happened. Um, so that evokes that in-between space of often not being able to fully articulate or sometimes raising uh, uh, complaints and grievances and having them fall on deaf ears from those in power. Uh, there's a very striking section here uh, which still takes our breath away. The sister survivors were eager to have uh, not so much their names per se, but to evoke how small they were when the abuse started. And here, written in the simple pencil markings that one might see in a kitchen door jam regarding a child's height, uh, nine years, four foot one, 11 years, four foot five, um, uh, 16 years, uh, five feet, showing just how small people were. And it's, it's a very impactful and sorrowful section um, showing the heights of some of the survivors at the age when they were first abused. Um, it's one of those spaces that demands quiet contemplation. Mm -hmm. Mary perhaps could explain uh, this very powerful case immediately adjacent. So Sure, so we're looking at a case that has an extremely small jacket, a t-shirt, a series of pins, and as a museum we deal with objects and the meaning of objects all the time. What these are, however, are really difficult to deal with objects because they were objects given by the perpetrator as grooming objects to say, oh, you're special and win trust and all these things that led to all this abuse, um, all these grooming techniques. And members of our committee who had some of these items talked about the power of them and wanting to get rid of them and we went through a series of conversations, well, what happens to them? And there were some thoughts of, you put them all into a bonfire and as a museum we can't really do that. But they wanted, um, visitors to see the power and the power they've now no longer hold power over them so they've been able to put them away and put them here our exhibit manager who is the person who installs all the elements of the exhibit she found um, she had been a part of all of our planning meetings and she had been a part of all these conversations she found that when it was time to install this case in the exhibit she realized that for the her um, assistants who are helping with getting the exhibit set up, the, the emotional difficulty of dealing with these objects were for her um, support staff. And she did make a decision that she was the one who's gonna place these objects so that no one else had to have that trauma of, mm. of dealing with the objects. Right, we talked about how small they were and you can really see it in the sweatshirt there. Yeah. Right. These were ways, of course, of the perpetrator tried to uh, continue to control um, his victims uh, and tried uh, to keep on encouraging them with dreams of Olympic, Olympic success mm. and they would just play along basically. 
We're standing in front of uh, an important artifact of protest. We have a fair number of objects of resistance and protest. This is an object that was actually held up at the Board of Trustees meeting. Uh, uh, reviewing the history of what was called the Healing Assistance Fund. So in addition to the payouts for, through litigation, the university repeatedly made uh, commitments to sister survivors and their family members that needed medical bills um, for psychiatric care and associated uh, support would be covered out of a special fund. And it, it, it has never really worked out. There have been repeated promises made, controversy and so forth. So here's a, a large object that just recounts that story. The name of the perpetrator is actually uh, the curatorial team decided to cover up to sort of mask every time his name appears, you'll just see the perpetrator. And that seemed, again, important to keep faith. We're now standing in front of something um, uh, termed by the sister survivors the trauma cloud. This is a phrase that they, many of them, learned in therapy to characterize the experience of uh, long-term symptoms of trauma when one doesn't even know what a symptom is. It's just life. And many have talked about how difficult it is, it has been to focus upon whether or not it's fear of intimacy or flashbacks or low self-esteem or eating disorders, uh, a sort of loss of a sense of self uh, or loss of a sense of one's own body even. And one can't focus on that. So our very brilliant designer, Kelly Hansen, tried a number of possibilities and then settled on this inst artistic installation uh, in which there's a sort of set of filmic uh, phrases, almost like on a film screen, and the light moves through and casts a shadow in which it's very difficult to read the words on the wall behind, on the teal wall behind, that that's significant because that characterizes that experience of not quite being able to focus, uh, not being able to fully name one's symptoms, although gradually through the therapeutic process it becomes possible to know certain experiences as symptoms. And that's key to the long-term healing process they've emphasized to us. We then move from the concept of something happened to discussing institutional failures, because again, it was so important to address the institutions that had failed the survivors. The object that visitors will see here are two conclusions from a 2014 Title IX report that was filed, <coughs> excuse me, where um, in the conclusion of that Title IX report, there was one conclusion clearing the perpetrator given to the person who filed the complaint, another that was circulated internally through the university, and she was not aware that there had been that internal until many years later, and she realized the extent to which the university had gaslighted her for so many years um, after she reported the crime. Now, of course, the precise question of who saw and when they saw that non-redacted report is the subject to multiple inquiries, including a likely criminal trial of a former president. So these are very important documents, and it was important to the sister survivors that at least a few examples of the enormous documentary evidence be be shown. And I think that was a challenging part for us developing the exhibition. Of course we knew the importance of, of highlighting uh, individual experiences of trauma and suffering and talking about the healing journey. But the sister survivors equally wanted to make sure that institutional failure, institutional complicity, uh, the sort of structural and collective violence be highlighted too. And um, we were, uh, as Mary says, uh, that was a sort of deal breaker for the sister survivors and, and something we all had to learn how to do together to really tell that part of, the, of a very tough story. Yeah. As we move along, um, we move sort of towards the period that leads to uh, the arrest of the perpetrator, the remarkable uh, week in January 2018 when the sister survivors astounded the world with 156 instances of testimony uh, during the victim impact uh, Face the trial, uh, emphasizing the movement from individual voice to collective voice, and there are protest signs that are now part of uh, the permanent collection that Mary oversees uh, uh, of what we sometimes call craftivism, the use of um, arts, uh, sort of classic arts and crafts techniques uh, to tell stories of resistance. I like that craftivism. Yeah. Yeah, bringing craft and activism together. I have to use that from now on. Here's an example. 
so Mary has a significant collection, for example, that she oversees of pussy hats for the Women's March. Mm -hmm. uh, Another protest signs from the Women's March. Um, a few things from Black Lives Matter things on campus. We even have some historical protest material looking back to the early 1970s mm. and a student strike that involved thousands and thousands of students walking out of class in protest. Um, but it is a really interesting concept to think of craft and activism mm -hmm. together and the material objects that are created, whether they be signs, whether they be hats, whether they be a quilt. Um, a lot of knitting is done to think of that material culture, how that becomes a voice for people. So do you go to these events and then ask for these items or following the event do you put out a statement that saying like you know we we collect done, these events we love both. to collect these and I events. think that's part of the learning process of how you deal with rapid response collecting mm -hmm. is anticipating what might be something that should become a part of the museum collection and since we are a university museum it's both thinking of the preservation of that object, but also how we can use it for teaching, because we have a lot of students who use our collections not just when they're on exhibit, but become to our collections building behind the scene. And we can, so even all of the protest signs you see here, we'll be able to use these in years to come to have classes come in and use them as a starting point, but sometimes that object has real power and really opens a conversation in a way that sometimes just standing in front of class and saying, let's talk about whatever, um, the object sometimes really gets people to talk. So we'll have all these things in our collection as resources into the future. I guess the dream would be for these to be something that people can use as the starting point at the end to show how far they've come. Sure, yeah, yeah. We're standing in front of uh, a case that has several objects of protest associated with the organization Reclaim NSU, which is an alliance of students and faculty and staff and other supporters that seek to restructure the university. So there's a large sign that says MSU lost its way. Uh, and what it, it, it's sort of several directional signs, pointers that are going in opposite direction to, mm -hmm. to sort of visually communicate that. Um, we have another section here on Words Matter. Survivors kept on mentioning to us the importance of language, that words could be weapons, uh, that could be used in very harmful ways, words could also heal. Um, sure, and so one of the things we have in the Words Matter section is we have a digital display that shows three versions of the alumni magazine. There is an issue that was produced in spring 2018 addressing the crisis and the then acting president, in harsh words, pulled this issue and it did not go out to alumni. Instead, there's another issue you see here that um, is green, has big words that are very pro, like everything is good now and everything's fixed. Um, people were not happy about that. And actually we received our digital copy of the original version because the student newspaper was given a leaked copy and they published it and then they shared that digital file with us for the exhibit. The third version of the alumni magazine that you see is from um, spring 2019 where some of that original material was now included in the issue but it's, it's not on the cover this case. Um, the theme of words matter in this section is also one of what the co-curators decided was a main message of the exhibit. When we were developing the exhibit and with all exhibits early on one of the things you do is decide what are the main messages you want your visitors to receive after visiting the exhibit and the committee came up with both message, a message for all survivors and a message for just general visitors for all survivors, they wanted to have a main message of you are not alone, that this was not just an exhibit for the survivors of this crisis, but for all survivors of sexual assault and abuse. They also, in their main messages to general visitors, words matter, that sense that words can hurt or heal was a main message that they wanted to, to get across to the general visitors. I think that this words matter sort of goes back to what you were saying about the timeline and having to double check it, not because just because you were worried that someone out there would say, mm -hmm. you know, well, that doesn't match. And I think that this reflects that too, that what people say about it does matter, even yes. though, you know, it shouldn't. It should just be believed that this happened. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah, and the way we decided to, to put some of that information across in the exhibit is we went back again to our newspaper sources and we pulled headlines of different people's 
quotes of what they had said, and that's how we chose some of the words here. But we also decided to include a t-shirt here because it was a t-shirt created in support that says, I stand with the sister survivors. So there's an example of words that can heal and help. So for visitors uh, to the exhibition, they'll see the first gallery is difficult to walk through. It's primarily objects of pain. And uh, then we move into the second gallery uh, where things open up a little bit and, and it becomes more objects of healing. There are some important statistics that the survivors wanted to share with us that tragically most, uh, most victims of, uh, of sexual assault uh, know their perpetrators uh, previously. But the old idea of stranger danger turns out not to be all that accurate. Uh, there is a large banner that says Believe Survivors, created by uh, students that was held, in, held up in the Board of Trustees meeting room. There's a, a sitting, a seated place that has some uh, informational material. And it's also uh, where we can reflect a little bit on the healing power of music. Amanda Cormier, who was, had been a student here, um, a voice student who uh, had for some years, as a result of the, of the crisis, lost her ability to sing, to write music, finally was able to write a new song. And you can at the listening station here listen to her very beautiful song about her experiences and her healing journey, uh, which has been record uh, professionally recorded. Uh, she's a country music uh, singer. She was just back on campus this week performing again. Maybe Mary can explain uh, this section here. So what we're looking at is a section called Trees as Witnesses, where you see um, hundreds of teal ribbons placed on um, trees that we created here. What these are, they're kind of a starting place for where this exhibit came from. When the sentencing was happening in January 2018 and it was you know the middle of winter and dark and dreary and all this emotional heaviness across campus, teal ribbons appeared one day tied to trees across campus and each one has a ribbon with a survivor's name or a victim number on it, depending on if the person was public or not. And they were placed on trees. Um, we found out, because we were so curious about, we were a museum, we like objects, how, who made them and the significance behind them. We eventually found out that they were created by a group of parents who were putting them on trees as objects and tokens of commemorating each of these women they remained um, amazingly on the trees all through the winter and all through the summer when there was um, an infestation of gypsy moths on trees on campus and we learned um, more about gypsy moths than we thought as a cultural curator um, that I would ever know but that they um, like to nest in things like the tool that was tied around the trees and was going to cause harm to the trees so the university called for them to be taken down. Luckily, Mark was able to reach out to the mom and to others at the university to create a plan and it all happened very fast within 24 hours or less to remove them respectfully because that idea of removing them respectfully was so important because the university had already caused so much harm. We didn't want the disrespect of these coming down and being thrown away, for example. Um, so there was a process where we had, it was incredibly moving to be a part of it, where the moms who placed the ribbons and other allies that they had selected went around to each tree and untied and removed the ribbon and would say the, the name and have a moment of contemplation. And then as the museum people, it was just our job to stand there with our bags and they put each one into a bag. Um, we tied it up to seal it so that we could then later think about the preservation and conservation process of, of these ribbons. So um, we did uh, take on uh, what we call a community conservation with these where first of all the ribbons need to be frozen to kill any living bugs that were still there. But then um, we brought a conservator from Ohio to campus who did a workshop with some of the moms to train them how to clean and preserve the ribbons. So there was this extra layer of emotion in them doing the work and it was amazing to be in the room and to stand back and just observe the power of cleaning these ribbons because it really was an object standing in for a person. So there was lots of emotion going on. So um, the, the moms worked with us to clean all the ribbons 
and um, then we were able to bring them into the exhibit and our committee made it very clear that every single one of those original ribbons needed to be in the exhibit. We couldn't just choose three representative ones or we couldn't use replicas because each of these ribbons were a stand-in for a person and they had that representation. Also, when you look at this mass of teal ribbons on the trees here, you see that each one is slightly different because of the weathering that they encountered when they were out on campus for all those months. Um, each one has kind of a different wear that actually becomes in a weird way beautiful mm -hmm. and represents the individuality of each of the women. So there is a real power with seeing the mass of them, seeing the individuality with each of them. Yes, I mean, the original sort of insurgent art operation by the moms and the Allies uh, was really was brilliant in that it spread across the entire campus, this very large campus through the Arboretum. So we would walk the full length of the campus and would be continuously reminded in the snow and the flooding and so forth uh, of that long spring of just how massive this, uh, uh, this set of crimes was. Um, but there's also something to be said here in this corner of the museum for massing all of those. You'll also notice that uh, for the front of trees, the ribbons here, you can actually read names on the ribbons. Uh, and that was the case originally for all, uh, all of the ribbons had either the name of the sister survivor uh, or of her victim impact number. But in this case, we've been very careful to prop practice what's called affirmative consent. So if an individual has specifically written uh, that she's fine with having her name identified, that particular ribbon is visible, otherwise the ribbons are folded back. Uh, people's rights were violated continuously. We would never want to disclose or violate anybody's sense of privacy. So we always err on the side of protection of privacy. Um, and there's a lot of beautiful symbolism that we talk about to the trees being witnesses, the trees that were here long before the campus that will be here long afterwards, having seen the worst and the best of what the university is capable of. Um, this section here uh, is on objects that were made in expressive arts workshops about a year ago. That was a pretty difficult and challenging period. Uh, then interim President Engler uh, continuously, uh, well, sort of remonstrated or denounced the survivors, claiming they were enjoying being in the spotlight or uh, just exhibited an enormous lack of empathy and that was devastating for many sister survivors. We found it difficult even to walk, uh, to feel free and moving out into space. We, we were able to bring in a wonderful expressive arts therapist, Nan Doolittle, from Washington State, whom I had worked with before in museum projects. And she conceived of this idea of that the survivors might wish to create their own staffs of strength, or these enormous walking sticks out of, out of tree branches gathered in the forest. And so they did that and, uh, in a wonderful expressive arts workshop. Uh, many created these powerful staffs and were able to take walks with them. They're each of the beautiful and different, some with photographs. Some of them are inspired by the Japanese practice of kintsukuri, in which we say if a tea bowl shatters, the, the shards, the cracks are actually believed to be sacred and are filled in with gold, not as something to be hidden, but rather to be celebrated. It always reminds us of Leonard Cohn's famous lyrics and anthem that uh, are the cracks, because that's what that's where the light shines in. So they're quite striking up there. We had not thought that we were going to be exhibiting these. So the design this, team This was to, an exhibit that we were listening to our co-curators on and decisions were being made and changes being made up until very, very close to opening. And we sometimes drive our designer crazy because all of a sudden she'd have to find room for another set of things. But once it all came together, each of those things, you see why it was told to us that that needed to be there because they each have an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the commitment that we made to the survivors is that this would be an exhibition at the highest level of professionalism that would really look great. And uh, that usually means that we plan everything out, anything out uh, you know, uh, digitally months uh, or even years in advance. In this case, we had to be very responsive. We did a special workshop also for the parents of the survivors. They wanted to create their own objects. So in this case, uh, they liked the idea of creating uh, bowls of life as gifts to their daughters that were decorated, again, on the theme of wood. Uh, as we continue along with the timeline, we come to uh, a screen on which you can see where the sister survivors are now in their healing journey. 
the very beginning we met the sister survivors when they were very young in black and white now they're in color uh, and it's just quite amazing thinking where they all are uh, around the country around the world in different places uh, there's a powerful work of poetry by one of the youngest of the survivors like many she compares her journey in life to the balance beam as mm. a competitive gymnast and at one point she even says at the end i fall from the past but land in the future mm. so the dismount becomes a way of moving forward perhaps mary can talk a little bit about this we uh, have work several pieces of art that were created by sister survivors who joined us in this project that involve the creation of art as part of the journey in this case we're looking at a triptych a three-piece tapestry made by Elena Cram and it's called Emergence. We met her at the Healing Arts Workshop where the staffs were created and we learned that she um, was a weaver and had an interest in creating a piece for the exhibit and she started talking to us about one concept that she had but when she sat down at her loom and started to create something totally different came out and that's what you see here. It's, um, so it's a triptych, it's a three-part work where it goes from a small, middle, and large piece in the pieces, you see the beginning of her journey, which is fairly dark, you, and that is before the sentencing. That represents her then. Then you see herself represented in the time of sentencing, where it's growing a little taller. It's brightening a little bit. You start to see some brightness, especially at the top, but there's still shards of dark going through there. In the third part of the work, it's even taller and it's much, much brighter and this is how she's depicting herself today at the time she created the art. So we're so grateful that we met these sister survivors who are artists and they wanted their work to be a part of what we have in here. The sister survivors have emphasized that the decision to come out um, was always difficult. It was a very personal one. Ultimately, none of them felt, uh, in spite of what president, our former president said, None of them <clears throat> felt that they gained anything out of it, uh, other than the sense that they could perhaps help other people. And so the role of being an advocate, being an activist, struggling for legislative remedies, either in Michigan or other states, or ultimately federally, getting the word out uh, about the rights of survivors. A lot of them recently traveled to New York, to the United Nations, uh, where they were part of uh, they've been part of the advocacy campaign for the United Nations General Assembly to endorse the rights of uh, survivors of, of sexual violence. That's been enormously important to their journey. I think very much want to emphasize that, their solidarity with the Me Too movement, with the global struggle against gender-based violence, including sexual violence as a weapon of war. So that's addressed uh, this wall as well. And we sort of end up this gallery with uh, one of the most extraordinary works of art. This is a dress created by Alexandra Ward, who has a shop in Detroit, um, she has art and fiber. In this piece, she started where she talked to us about during the sentencing, again, art as a coping mechanism. She started to cut out, out of these hand-dyed silks, butterflies in their vibrant array of, of colors. And she realized that she had over 300 butterflies, each representing a survivor. She made them into a dress that she initially displayed in her shop, and we learned of it and were able to bring it into our collection and into the exhibit. So it's this um, dress with butterflies flying off of it, showing the different sister survivors, each again unique, so different color. Every butterfly has its own unique look to it, flying off in it. The dress itself is displayed on a dress form, that the dress form, it's a type of dress form that you can use to create clothing of different sizes so it's adjustable, but that visual that comes from making the dress form adjustable, it actually looks kind of like a fractured body. It has mm -hmm. lines and some broken elements to it, and I find it very interesting in the creation of this art. It really becomes not just the dress, but a sculpture as a whole, because the dress form can be read as a fractured body with the beautiful dress over it and to me that says so much about what this exhibit is addressing <laughs> um, and, and just talks about the body and the harm but the beauty that is there at the same time 
which leads to another piece that she was gracious and allowed us to include a concept that our co-curators insisted that needed to be included. And it took some conversation for us to, I think, we had some apprehension to really understand why it was so important. If you look behind you, radiating out of the dress is a shadow of a crouched girl. And that um, represents the constant, if you look at in play with the dress, the going back and forth and that shadow that's there and the pain that's there and that it's a lifelong pain. And people at different points in their journeys, they go back and forth that they might be experiencing both the beauty and the pain at the same time. And it was really important to our co-curators that we include that representation that not, we didn't, they didn't want us to end with a sense of, it's all healed, everything's good, we're, we're moving forward, um, to, to, to let the visitors really hit that there's still that trauma there, and we can't forget that. We do have a section on the importance of being an ally, what it means to be an ally. Uh, so many people don't know how to respond uh, appropriately to survivors of gender-based violence and try to tell them how to feel uh, or tell them to get over it and so forth. Uh, so we have a few... Uh, few guidelines that the sister survivors have, uh, have laid out for us. There's a beautiful object created by the student activist group Go Teal, out of the darkness that says take a ribbon to acknowledge their strengths. You can have a ribbon of all, at that point, of 156 known And they uh, would survivors. place these boards outside of board of trustees meetings so people mm -hmm. could grab a ribbon as they went into a board of trustees meeting. And they've used them in other places too, but that was their original installation. Right. It seemed very important to us to honor the work of the student activists uh, because really at a time when this campus was in total denial a few a couple of years ago, it was really the students that were keeping the torch burning uh, for the light of truth. We move on to a final section. Uh, again, the survivors insisted to be called It's Not Over. Uh, first of all, it's not over in a psychological level as we've mentioned. Uh, the, the wounds, this is what trauma means, the wounds uh, continue throughout the life and sometimes are passed on through the generations. Uh, and structurally, obviously, the university still hasn't lived up to its full obligations. Uh, there are remaining debates over which documents, for example, should be stayed, uh, shared with the attorney general, state attorney general, and so forth. So there's a continuing saga. There is, however, a wonderful quote that dates back to February 2019 when uh, acting uh, president uh, Engler was removed from his position and a new acting president Satish Udpa who was much more sympathetic to the survivors came in and issued a very beautiful uh, apology that was extremely long overdue but was very heartfelt uh, there is a sort of hilarious uh, little protest sign President Engler often referred uh, to uh, uh, to all the teal ribbons and the teal activism is that teal shit so when he was forced and it was fired uh, within an hour. I think a student activist put up a sign here that says, "Teal shit one Engler zero. So, on a sports mad campus, uh, that was the score. Uh, there is a very powerful uh, victim impact statement um, that meant a lot to the survivors uh, from the, uh, you know, from the trial. I'll just read it. There is no magical force that can right these wrongs. Time does not automatically heal. Evil does not recede on its own. It must be overcome and forced into retreat. We all have an obligation to be part of that force that will bring forth change, both here in this courtroom and out there where there is still so much work to be done. And then finally, we have an iPad, which is the continuation of our timeline because this is an ongoing news story. We can't just end the timeline when the exhibit opens. So this is a place where we regularly add what has happened so that our visitors are aware of, of what is the current news is. So the most recent update being the, uh, the forced resignation, the firing of Provost Junior, uh, who was specifically named in the Office of Civil Rights report from the Federal Department of, uh, of Education for her, uh, for her failures. Um, uh, related to this case. Uh, we also have one more section of the exhibition upstairs, uh, which we can go up and see a very important uh, work of art that's, that's part of the installation. Oh, while we're here, maybe oh, yeah. Mary could tell us a little about this consent and respect every day. So, um, one of the things that we needed to figure out how to address is we have a lot of pre-K to 12 visitors and some um, parents and caregivers may want 
their their kids to go into the bigger exhibit. Others may not, so we wanted to have something in our more public space in our lobby, but also just something to address talking to kids about consent. Mm -hmm. So um, this is uh, an amazing wall that was created by our education team um, that's called Consent and Respect Every Day or Care that walks kids through, and other visitors too, but um, what's so important about consent? So what if something happens? How can we take care of each other? And with um, very, it's almost simple, but says a lot at the same time to talk to kids about that. In addition to the wall, there's a game that was created that kids or others can sit down and play that talks about consent with cards that address um, actions. And um, so for example, this one, the question says, you want to comfort someone who is crying. What do you say or do to give people a chance to sit down and have a conversation? Then there's another set of cards that are knowledge. And for example, this one has a question that says, if your friend asks you to sleep in their bed during a sleepover, do you have to do it? And the answer is no. So a chance for kids, parents, whomever to sit down, play, have a conversation though at the same time. We're thinking about how this part of the exhibit might live on. Is there an element that can go into schools or to other places? Oh, okay. So uh, let me go upstairs. We have, by the way, found that children without any prompting start to play the game. And oh, really? The most interesting conversations about issues of consent. I'm sure they see the game and go, that's for me. I know. Right. That's for me. Exactly. I'll point out at the top, at the top of our stairwell in between our elephants and mammoths, we are a natural history museum, but we have a section that was again created by uh, the mothers who have been important advocates and activists. Many of them have been inspired by the work of the Dalai Lama, by the Tibetan Buddhist emphasis on contemplation and meditation, spreading kindness and compassion through the tradition of the prayer flag. So scripture normally in Tibet would be written on the prayer flags and as the flags sort of disintegrate over the valley, they spread love and compassion and kindness. So in a similar way, the mothers embroidered on the flags of the names of their daughters. There were hundreds and hundreds made. Thousands of MSU students then undertook responsibility to write messages of encouragement. And these were hung up uh, around town. But the original group was hung right here uh, in our stairwell with our elephants uh, sort of as their guardians. So we, uh, I guess we'll take them down in a few months, but, uh, but they're still here. And then we have a, a beautiful sunny day. This And then coming in here to the final part of the exhibition, you notice that we always do have trigger warnings. Yes. Uh, and people are able to process this at their own speed. Yeah, and we've learned that when we have classes or other groups come in, we share the trigger warnings so that students um, and others can choose what they want to participate in. We're standing in front of an important artwork by uh, the Michigan emerging artist Jordan Fishman. It's entitled Together We Roar. It's a 21 foot long triptych, again in three parts. Uh, Jordan recently received her BFA from the University of Michigan, and this is her senior project. She is one of the impacted gymnasts, and she tells her story and the story of hundreds of sister survivors uh, through the visual metaphor of the women's gymnastics uh, uh, Olympic competition floor. So you'll see at the very beginning the sign of USA Gymnastics, uh, a group of judges, of Olympic judges, looking on one particular young gymnast, and she's smiling for them, for the camera, uh, but oh, attached to the calves of her left leg, we see some kind of creature, a kind of demon that reminds us of the demons that, that sister survivors continue to carry. We see the continuous motif, so familiar for women's Olympic uh, gymnastics, of the vault, the uneven parallel bar, the balance beam and floor exercise repeated again and again. But as we move through that, we see interspersed with the apparatus uh, uh, of gymnastics, uh, evocations of the medical examining table on which so many victims were, um, were assaulted. Uh, we see 
the body in pain, in many cases uh, young girls, young teens, uh, were put through extraordinary dangerous physical regimens, that's part of the training in gymnastics, and that's the context that in many ways made them vulnerable to a skilled predator. Uh, we see artistic allusions to Picasso's Guernica and Basquiat and Frida Kahlo and the works of the Flemish Renaissance, uh, the damage uh, to the body uh, that was done, but also the sort of remaking of the body in the form of a roaring and defiant uh, gymnast who is fighting back. Uh, by the very end, we see the signs, the symbols of USA Gymnastics being disassembled by the sister survivors who are sort of remaking the sport on their own terms. It's a very complex piece. Every time we're here with young people, they point out new things to us. Mm -hmm. Mary, what strikes you about this work of art? Um, oh, it's just such a emotional and difficult yet beautiful at the same time piece. And it's amazing to me that a student artist created such a powerful piece that says so much. And, Mark walked us through some of the things that are portrayed here, and there's so much in here. Um, it's, it's just really something I think that you could take to any art history class and have a discussion at the same level of any of the kind of canon standards that are discussed in art history classes. We are a science museum, so there is some conversation with science here. Uh, April Pooley, who's an MSU neuroscientist, traveled to Ann Arbor to be with Jordan in her studio, and they recorded themselves having a very fascinating conversation about the insights of neuroscience, uh, what we now know about what sexual assault does to the brain, the topics that came up during the Kavanaugh hearings about a year ago, uh, and also why art turns out to be so important. We now understand better and better through neuroscience uh, why art is so important to the healing process, and that's, that recording can be listened to um, for people who visit. Um, so that takes us through the entire exhibition. Uh, it, as I say, the idea of this exhibition emerged about a year and a half ago, and it's been a gradual process of constant renegotiation. We've learned an enormous amount through it. And then every day is a little bit different as, uh, as sister survivors and family members and individuals uh, from many different walks of life come through and in some cases uh, feel moved to share their own experiences. And we hope all resolve from having seen this exhibition to play their part in the global struggle against gender-based violence. How long will the exhibit be up for? The exhibition will be up through April 2020, so Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. It's a little longer than we had originally thought, but it seems important for um, the survivors, uh, for, uh, for faculty, and so forth. Uh, it's being integrated into many classes across campus. Were you asked to like, um, I'm just, because you said it was a year and a half ago that the exhibit, so were you and your team asked to house the exhibit, or were you guys like, I think this is something we need to be a we part of? We initiated it. Okay. Um, so when those, those ribbons first appeared on the tree, as a curator and a curator interested in objects related to social justice, I was so intrigued with them, and I so wanted to have a ribbon in our collection, but I also knew it was like so wrong if I were to take one down and put it in the museum without, you know, having it, mm -hmm. the consent of having that done. Um, so when we became a part of that process of removing the ribbons, the immediate concern was just to make sure those ribbons were treated respectfully and that we could lend some advice on how to take care of them. We started immediately talking about wouldn't it be great to do an exhibit and Mark gave a lecture about museums as sites of healing. We went out to dinner with a group of survivors afterwards and it was there this amazing conversation about doing an exhibit and these ideas that were so creative and inspiring and even more so made me as a curator like we have to do this exhibit we have to do it in the biggest space that we have at the museum um, and so it happened very very fast um, and we were so um, lucky and fortunate that the sister survivors and their allies were willing to work with us because this is you know we're part of the institution that is a part of why this continued for so long and um, that they were open to the and shared so much of themselves in working with us to create the exhibit was really meaningful and that they let us in was amazing. But I will say it's not as if we even sought permission from the senior administration, we just knew we were going to do it. Okay. We did work carefully, uh, there's an important group called the uh, uh, expert working group 
uh, on relationship violence and sexual misconduct, uh, and we did sort of run everything through them. They had a representative on the process, but we just knew we had to do this. Or rather, my staff knew they had to do this. It was actually the morning after that dinner that Mary mentioned that she and uh, uh, Teresa, our exhibitions director, I mean, they came right in and said, look, we can't just put this in a corner. Uh, this can't be a little so-called pop-up exhibition. This needs to be in our major gallery. It has to be our major initiative for the coming year. And um, that's the job of the director when your staff tells you something like that to say, "All right, uh, we have to reach out to a to a guest faculty curator who was supposed to go into that space." And she very graciously agreed. This was the most important priority. And then we were off and running uh, with a process. Very short timeline <laughs> compared to other exhibits. Yeah. Have you found that you're getting people into the museum that might not have come into the museum? I feel like I've heard more about impact in class use from this exhibit than I've worked here a really long time than mm -hmm. I've heard from any other exhibit okay. I've been involved with and I'm so pleased that faculty and students want to come and see it, they want to use it, and other people too. Um, it, it makes me really, really happy. And we're very pleased that we were just recognized, the whole team, by the Michigan Museum Association mm. with our annual Peninsula Award um, for this exhibition. I read about and that, that. that means an enormous amount to us. And you can even see downstairs in the front hall the, uh, the award. Uh, it's, uh, it's always nice to be recognized by our peers and that the sister survivors were there too uh, when we got the award in Grand Rapids. It was really wonderful. Anything else? I don't think so. We normally end on a a lighter note, and we just like to ask all of the people that we interview what you're reading right now, because we are both come from library science and oh. history backgrounds, oh, no. so we like to read. So it can be anything, it doesn't have to be for your field or it's something serious, whatever you happen to be reading right now. I know, and you said this is usually a lighter part, and <laughs> well, because I am I'm teaching a Foundations of Museum Studies class this semester, so I'm doing um, lots of reading to make sure I have all the things that are happening right now to share with my class and you happen to have asked that question in the midst of when I'm doing readings about museums and gender and museums and race and museums and um, decolonizing yes. museums but um, in that vein I am um, hoping to as soon as I'm done teaching the class to read the new book by Lonnie Bunch who's the director of the Smithsonian's that relates to that but yet I, the little bits that I've read excerpts of are really amazing. So that's the next thing I'm looking forward to reading that's a little lighter, maybe. Well, I'm doing lots of academic reading, but the fun thing I'm reading right now is the latest uh, book uh, by Philip Pullman from the Book of Dust series, The Secret Commonwealth, mm -hmm. which uh, revisits uh, his great heroine of uh, Lila, Lila uh, yeah. uh, as an adult, um, with all of our young adult, with all of the tragic complexities of young adulthood. <laughs> So it's quite remarkable. We're very interested in the works of imagination and obviously fiction geared towards young adults uh, in this museum. Uh, and it's just remarkable watching what Pullman does with this ever-evolving, complex, contradictory figure of Lila. Uh, so uh, uh, just starting that, eager to see how it turns out. All right. You reading anything? Uh, just for school. Just for school, I think, right yeah. now. Yeah, I started a book on the teacher strikes, so it's called okay. Teacher Strikes. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm reading right yeah. now. I'm reading uh, Provincializing Europe by Chakrabarty. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I guess on a, on a lighter note, I do have a three-year-old boy, and I've been reading a lot of books about trucks. So oh, that's <laughs> fun. With lots of pictures and tactile so, things. Have you got it to Mike Mulligan and his steam? No, no, we haven't done, so. done those. <laughs> You'll notice, uh, walking through the second floor, uh, again, on the lighter side, we have something called a story walk, so we've taken the story, uh, this children's book, uh, because of an acorn, all the things that come from mm. an acorn, blown that up. And uh, children, you will sometimes hear uh, taking their parents or grandparents through the museum, reading aloud, and then spying in the dioramas uh, objects that are seen in the book. So it's a way of encouraging uh, literacy and the, the joy of reading. Uh, oh, that's throughout, so we, our, our partners in the East Lansing Public Library have been really wonderful. Good. Glad to hear that. <laughs> Someone who works in a public library. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Well, well you and so of course, much. the Ann Arbor Public Library is an important partner because uh, there's been the digitization and the transcription of the sister survivors' testimonies oh, okay. done through the Ann Arbor Public Library. So that's an invaluable resource uh, for everybody. Yeah, public libraries are... Uh, 
we like to think of as the foundational bulwarks of democracy, yes. in a country where democracy is uh, under assault every day. So we, we feel our partnerships with libraries are uh, absolutely vital. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this thank you. A little different than how we normally record a, an episode. Okay. As you just listened to, we had a wonderful tour through the Sister Survivor exhibit at Michigan State's museum, and Allie wanted me to comment on what we saw and what happened as a Michigan State alumni. So when all the information started coming out, I remember being, like most people, shocked and sad and then upset having been an alumni of Michigan State and loving having gone to Michigan State that I didn't feel like I could wear Michigan State clothes every time I went out and it was on the TV I wanted to look away I felt even though this is in no way possible somehow complicit and then as in more information came out about the university's involvement or their cover-up and what they knew and what they didn't know and it was on the news everywhere you went and I just felt so sad for all of the women that were affected and their families and then to think I was on the a campus where that was happening and it was just really upsetting and I always think of a trauma incident is like waves across a pond so the first impact of course hits the person that it happens to the hardest that's the rock hitting the water and then there's the ripple effect so then it affects their closest friends and family and then they have to experience it and inform other people and that affects another group of people and of course as it goes further and further out it dissipates the trauma but and obviously I was f very far removed from any of the people who were victims but I was still connected to a community that felt responsible for those young women and felt bad about what happened. And, you know, it still affects you. That ripple goes all the way across large uh, portions of the water. And just like the trauma affects a lot of people further and further away from the initial impact point. So I did what a lot of people did, and they talk about this at the museum exhibit. I didn't wear my Michigan State paraphernalia. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't, you know, I of course talked to my friends who were other alumni, and we all felt the same way. But I imagine rooting for the football teams and other sports became difficult for people that are into those. And... I'm so happy to have seen what the museum did for them and what different communities on campus did with the trees and wrapping the um, teal uh, around the trees and to let the young women and their families and loved ones know they weren't alone. And I'm proud of my, my college was one of the first colleges with the, um, the dean and the faculty and the students to come out and ask for more investigations and to have uh, the then President Simon step down. And I know there were a lot of communities on campus that were really concerned and wanted to lend a helping hand. So seeing the museum uh, do what they did, I had seen it once before on my own, and then this time we walked through it with the curator, and that was really amazing. And I'll just say, you know, we can't let people like that affect our lives in adverse ways either. And so we have to move forward as a community and as Spartans and do the best we can to, you know, tell people that we don't stand for things like that and that we will work to end that behavior. And I know that a lot of college campuses have been in the news with this, you know, similar instances, and um, it's a big problem, and sexual assault on college campuses is a major problem, and definitely Michigan State and other universities can do a better job uh, dealing with situations like that, and just hopefully this was a wake-up call to administrations 
across the country and presidents and that this is not acceptable and that we can't let this happen. So those are my thoughts as an alumni and I'm sure that other alumni share them and I'm getting to the point where I wore Michigan State clothing to work and of course someone mentioned Larry Nasser, and I just you know of course commiserated and talked about how horrific it was but at the end of the day we can't let him decide who we are and what we love and he you know that can't take away my experiences at Michigan State which thankfully were all positive so hopefully you you enjoyed this episode and we were so grateful to the museum to give us the walking tour and hopefully you enjoyed listening and learning about how they developed their sister survivor exhibit which was truly amazing to behold